Thank you for tuning in to the sermon webcast of Living Savior. We are one church serving in two locations, Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. For more information, go to lsavior.org. He loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, his name was Frederick Johnson, and he had one of the shortest terms of prime minister for just 144 days in 1827, spanning over into the beginning of 1828. He struggled to keep the Whig and Tory parties, fragile coalition as it was, struggled to keep them together. And then there was some rioting and several people died and he lost it and he wept. And on account of that, he inherited the nickname, the blubberer. Aw, of all the nicknames you wish you had growing up, like crybaby, that's kind of the equivalent. That's not one of those that's very positive. The blubberer. One historian said, well, at least he was sincere. That's a kind caveat. Ivan Velisevich in the 1500s was ruthless, killed his political opponents in Russia. The Grand Prince of Moscow, he was called. You know him better as Ivan the Terrible. Is there a worse nickname? His economy, his policies, awful. Even banned free speech in Russia for a time. Even though he had the nickname the Terrible, though, there was one historian that said, at least when it came to some of his military attempts, his conquests, at least he was bold. That's, I guess, a kind caveat, an attempt. And we could go on down the line. There's Bloody Mary I, the Queen of England. There's Charles VI of France, also known as the Mad King. That'd be nice. Just known to be crazy. He had these spouts three, three months at a time where he would just go bonkers. And even if you go outside of history and you get into sports, then it gets really funny. Like Booger McFarlane, a.k.a. one of the worst Monday Night Football announcers of all time. Sorry, that's just my opinion. Glenn Big Baby Davis or Butterbean, the guy who's almost like more round than he is tall, the heavyweight boxer. Heard of any of these? Some of you are like, who are these people? You should watch more. You should watch some ESPN. But even outside of just sports or even history, even if you were to go through your high school, middle school days, there's probably some nicknames that maybe got tossed around. And a lot of times these nicknames weren't the most positive or complimentary in nature, but you probably still could find somebody that would say, even in the face of a negative nickname, at least they were fill in the blank. So what would that be for Thomas? Because he's not called Thomas. We don't just refer to him as Thomas the disciple, and I don't think anyone refers to this account as, this is the account of Thomas, also known as Didymus, which our lesson said. You refer to him as Doubting Thomas. Ah, what a nickname. Doubting Thomas. Most people forget there was a time in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. His opponents are turning up the heat. They start to plot his death. They're so ruthless, they are even thinking about how they can kill Lazarus. That's a special cocktail of crazy. And yet, who's the one who speaks up and says, let us go to Jerusalem that we may even die with him? It's Thomas. At least he was bold. A couple chapters later, John chapter 14, Jesus is in the upper room. Some of the most heartwarming words in all of the Bible. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you that you may also be where I am. And one of the disciples asks, we don't know the way to where you're going. And Jesus says, I am the 
way and the truth and the life. And you all know those words because Thomas is the one who asked the question. We don't know the way, so at least he's good at asking the right question. At least he's bold. Um, But John chapter 20, it's a different Thomas, isn't it? So let's lay the context. This is a week after that first Easter Sunday, Jesus had appeared to the women. Remember, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. She thought at first that the gardener had taken him, but it was actually Jesus. And imagine what happened to her heart, mind, and life when all Jesus did was say her name, Mary. My Lord! He appears to the women. He appears to 10 of the disciples. There were 12, remember. Judas is gone. You know what happened to him. Thomas wasn't there, so the other 10 were locked behind closed doors for fear of what the Jewish leaders might now do to Jesus' disciples if they crucified Jesus. What are they going to do to the disciples? And Jesus appears to them. He had appeared to those disciples that were walking to Emmaus. Thomas wasn't there, though. In that upper room where the disciples were, what does Jesus say? He does more than just say some words. He actually gives them the one thing that they need. I would argue it's the one thing we all need and we can't have it unless it comes from a Savior who conquers death. It's the word you overheard several times. Peace. And this isn't just one of those like inner feeling things. Not to... Not to diminish that at all. Having an inner peace in your heart and your soul or your mind is a wonderful blessing and even from God, but we also would have to admit that that feeling of being at peace is temporary and sometimes fickle and it's here today and then gone tomorrow. This peace that Jesus gives is something far greater and transcendent than just a feeling. First of all, it's a peace with God the one who said that he carried all of our sins and guilt and shame to the cross to pay the price, proved that it was finished for good forever and for you when he rose from the dead. So you no longer have to worry about where you stand with God. There is no fear. There's no guilt. There's no ominous threat. You have peace with God. Just as the angel said when Jesus was born, Savior has been born to you to bring peace between God and men. It's peace also with one another. The forgiveness of sins that Jesus says when you communicate this to others, it is as though Jesus is there saying it and certifying it himself. Think of what that means. You no longer walk around carrying the heavy burden, and a heavy burden it is, of the guilt that you feel because of the ways that you've wronged others. Because when they your fellow believers tell you that you are forgiven, it is as if Jesus is there to say you are forgiven. You no longer have to be that person who wanders around with the heavy burden, and a heavy burden it is, of the grudge that you have. The supposed lie that you or I might tell ourselves that so long as we hang on to the pain, then we will make sure that they pay. It's not true, but but we can easily hang on to that. No, we get to say they're forgiven. doesn't make what they did okay. It just leaves it in God's hands, the only judge, jury, and determiner of eternity. That's peace. It's a peace not just for time and life. It's a peace for all eternity. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, Paul says. To be at peace is not just a feeling. It means 
that there's nothing in eternity that we carry with us that's gonna be a burden from others to us or from us to others. What a transcendent peace that is that you can only have if it comes from a God who lived for you, died for you, and was raised again from the grave and did all this for you. Thomas didn't have that. So what did he have? He was determined, although he did not have this peace, I don't know what that week was like. We don't have all of those conversations recorded, but I imagine it was a bit tumultuous. Have you ever tried to talk to a friend who's kind of stubborn and bullheaded and you're trying to convince them something that is as clear as the sky being blue and the grass being green, but they're like, "Uh uh-uh, not having it. And you're like, seriously, I want to drive my head into a two by four. Why are you being so ridiculous? Because they just won't believe the simple, clear truth that you want to lay out before them. I kind of think, even though it's not recorded, I kind of think that there were some conversations with the disciples and Thomas, Thomas, Dude, we saw the Lord. How many ways do I have to communicate to you that we, with our eyes, saw Jesus? All of us, the women. I mean, how hard was that? We've seen the Lord. Thomas, missing out on that peace that Jesus provided, what does he want? Proof. And it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it because, first of all, demanding proof, at at first glance, it might seem like, well, this is pretty reasonable. We kind of want to see, see the proof too. But to take that position denies the proof that was already in plenty in front of him. Proof point number one. Jewish thought, culture, history, they were not the type of people that believed or longed for a bodily resurrection. They weren't. So for those Jewish comrades among the group, for Thomas to then see that they are not only saying that Jesus died and now rose bodily, but for them to even want to believe that? What would account for that? What would help them span that gap? Not just from fear to belief and faith, but from not believing in a bodily resurrection to now all of a sudden believing in one. The only thing would be that they saw Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Proof point number two, someone might say, well, they kind of all saw it. It was like a, you know, the equivalent of Casper the friendly ghost. They just kind of hallucinated that Jesus had risen from the dead. People still actually say that today, and it's kind of silly when you know um, anything at all about hallucinations. People don't hallucinate the same thing. Much less hundreds and hundreds of people Scripture tells us that Jesus appeared to well over 500 other people, many of whom were still around by the time Paul is writing his first letter to the Corinthian Christians in Greece. He says, you can even go ask them. They're still around. So if it's a hallucination, how do hundreds and hundreds of people hallucinate the same thing? So you have women who say they saw him, and then women who say they saw him also, and then you have the Emmaus disciples that came running back, and then you have the other 10 disciples who are all saying the same thing. This is not a hallucination. That's plenty of proof. And we can even say all of this centers on the word we've been talking a lot about today, which is the word witness. See, witness, for for Thomas to demand proof, and especially, specific kind of proof we'll get to in a second, he's denying what we and even they understand as the historical method. History isn't just that subject that you either loved or hated, because it seems like there's no way in between. History is a method, a way that you discern whether something can be corroborated as true when you and I weren't around at that time frame. Think about it. The Gettysburg Address. Were you alive? Nope. Did any of you wake up today thinking, 
I wonder if that even happened. No! You, you take witnesses. We call them primary sources, secondary sources, maybe even tertiary ones, and you carry them to the foreground and you compare all of them so that you can corroborate what seems to be the most reasonable and historically verifiable explanation of an event that happened in the past. We've been doing this forever, even during the day of Thomas. So to have these primary witnesses all tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord was as good a proof as he could have ever asked for. But what does he want? He wants a specific kind of proof. Unless I, and unless I, and did you pay close attention to where Thomas puts the burden of proof? He's not saying, Peter, you got to come through here. He's not saying, Andrew, this one's up to you. No, unless I see and can put my hands, he's putting the burden of proof on Jesus. As though God is now supposed to make the Milky Way look differently and like line all the stars up according to divine Thomas's demands, air quotes. Like how, this is beyond pretentious. This is arrogant. Is there anything more arrogant than telling God, you have to basically do what I tell you to do, otherwise I'm not going to believe you. That's what Thomas is saying. This is crazy arrogant. So what can we say? He's carrying the label, the nickname of Doubting Thomas. We would say, in this case, at least he's bold, maybe a little bit. At least he's asking the right questions, eh, not so much. You know how I would complete that sentence? At least he's, at least he's honest. At least he's honest. I get the sense, dear Christians, that there are plenty of people, as in all of us, who have our doubts. If you don't have doubts about what God says in his word, there's got to be maybe a few scenarios. One, you are insanely blessed. <laughs> I'm not going to say you're a unicorn, but that's pretty rare. If you have doubts, guess what that means? You're human. If you don't have any doubts, maybe you're rare. You just have this wonderful blessing of, of just taking with, with literal childlike faith, which God says is, is the highest there is childlike faith, whatever God says. Or, scenario number two, if you don't have doubts, you haven't really read the Bible. Just saying. Scenario number three, you haven't really talked with anyone outside of your Christian bubble who will cause you to question the things that you believe. That's my guess. Everyone has their doubts. I sometimes wonder if along the way there was maybe a pastor or a Christian friend that told us that if you have doubts, you're like, oh, you're an awful person. I actually had a pastor once who told me, don't ask, don't ask those questions. Thankfully, the next pastor that came along told me, Caleb, you're never going to get answers to your questions unless you ask them. I really thank God for that. I wonder if you had maybe the same experience where someone told you, like, thou shalt not ask any questions or have any doubts ever. Like, you're supposed to stop being human all of a sudden? Doubt comes with the zip code of faith. So at least we can say Thomas was honest. And I sometimes wonder, first of all, if some of us, we have our doubts, but we might err like Thomas did, that we expect God to do certain things. We might think presumably, maybe even arrogantly if we're being honest, that God has to do a couple other things before we take certain aspects of his word seriously when really all we need to do is look at the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, the same Jesus who validates the Old and New Testament, therefore he has the final say 
unless we can find someone else who can rise from the dead, Jesus has the say. But I sometimes wonder and maybe even worry a little bit as a fellow Christian, as a pastor, in my experience, how many times people, I know they have their doubts, I know they have their fears, but I don't hear them. At least we can say Thomas was honest because when he voiced his doubts, then you're able to deal with them. I, I can tell you from my experience the number of times when people have their doubts and they just, they might mention or inference them, but they don't want to talk. They might ask them a little bit, but they don't want to have a conversation about them. They think that their doubts are irrefutable as though God in heaven could never have an answer for whatever it is that they question. Time and again, I, if I had a quarter for every time, I'd have a lot of quarters. For the number of times believers have had their doubts and their questions, but whether it's fear or worry, shame, or even arrogance, have chosen to remain silent about them. Not to say they're dishonest, but certainly nonverbal. So of all the ways that we can maybe subjugate Thomas to some criticism with that nickname, Doubting Thomas. You at least have to give him this. At least he was honest. So if you're going to be honest with whatever doubts you have, because odds are you have them, whatever fears you have, because you're human, whatever worries and concerns, might I ask you, dear Christian, to not be honest in an arrogant way like Thomas was, but to be humble and yet honest Do you know that God has the answer? Look at the way that God deals with the doubter, the skeptic, the one who stays in this position of fear. Do you think if God hears these concerns, he's going to be like, "Ah, how dare you? (laughs) I've never heard that before. (laughs) Instead, look at what Jesus does. He goes to the doubter the one who is called Doubting Thomas, and he stands right in front of them. Do you think he's scared of your doubts? He stands right there. He takes his hands, the very thing that pays for those sins, and shoves them right into Thomas's face almost, just as he does for you and me. And what do those wounds say to you? They say more than words could express about the depth of God's love and forgiveness for every sin, including our doubts and our fears. The times when we've internalized whatever skepticisms we retain, thinking, oh, there can't be an answer, I'm afraid to ask it. There in his wounded side is the the body of Christ that was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Why? So that the punishment that brought us peace would be upon him. God only wants you to have this lasting peace, this eternal peace. And it's not by demanding proof. And it's not by expecting God to give us more than what he has already given us in plenty. It is by looking at the exact place where Jesus does give us his proof. His hands, his feet, and his side, the sacrifice for our sins and our guilt, and now there is a place where you can see all of that. It is the witness of God's word found on the pages of Scripture. You want peace? It doesn't demand added proof? Look no farther to where the Lord's Apostle John points us. To the pages. These are written that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, and that life doesn't end. So the next time you have a doubt, which is maybe in a couple minutes, the next time you have some fears, which is probably tomorrow, the next time skepticism starts to creep in, what do you do? Like what about when it comes to the things that God says in his word? He has plenty to say. You might be able to go to the history channel, which is full of all things true all the time, right? Sorry. Might I also encourage you to go to the place where God's spirit is alive and well, where he has promised to work, the pages of scripture, so that although you might not be able to see and touch everything that you might want to see and touch, you have the witness of countless others just like you who had their doubts and fears dispelled by God's holy and powerful word. Or any challenge in life, like your marriage. Maybe you're one of the rare ones who it is just bliss and sunshiny days every day, all day. Or maybe you're human. So where do you go? Practical advice abounds, but might I also invite you to go to the place where God gives you words that if you spent an hour on them every day for the rest of your life, you wouldn't scratch the surface. Think about it. Wives, Ephesians 6, wives, view your husbands as the church views Christ. Husbands, view your wives as Christ views the church. Do you think if you spent an hour every day for the rest of your life, you'd be able to comprehend that completely? Not a chance. Children, the way that you function with your siblings and with your friends. Parents, the way that you deal with your children, the way that you deal with your coworkers, your neighbors, the people who are challenges, they are blessed burdens in your life. The, the way that you live, the way that you view the future, which seems to be more uncertain after every day, certainly every passing year, these are all written not so that you may see and demand proof, but so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who rose to conquer every enemy that we have. And since we follow in that victorious march, then there's no restraint outside of us or even inside of us that can overcome the proof that God has already given in the pages of Scripture, which alone give us, as we say, the peace that surpasses all understanding. So my dear Christian friends, Whatever it is, the label that's next to you, maybe one of the labels, if we're honest, is a little bit of doubt, maybe skeptic. But next to it, I pray that we would also have this. At least we can be honest about them. And as we take whatever doubts and fears and worries and skepticisms we have to our Savior's word, we would recognize the same thing that Thomas saw, the same thing that we see by faith through God's word. And then in life, and certainly in eternity, we would always be able to say, not just with words, but with heart and mind and soul, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. May God grant that to you all. Amen. <laughs>